Now, the director has said that it's a rom-com for people who hate rom-com. And I think I know what he's getting at because I also saw Marry Me, which I would call a very typical rom-com. But I went into Marry Me thinking, I know what to expect. I mean, there should be happily ever after. There should be, you know, the misunderstanding that leads to the crisis. You know, there needs to be long, soulful looks into each other's eyes. You know, all the things that go into a rom-com. It's possible have the two people running on a beach and embrace, you know, all the cliches. And I will say this kind of flies in the face of expectations in terms of being a rom-com for people who hate rom-coms. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about the movie The Worst Person in the World and Uncharted starting with the worst person in the world. And we were joking before the show started about how the day I went to go see this movie, I posted on Facebook, going to see the worst person in the world with Colette Roberts. And I thought, wait, I need to, um, I need to change that with one of the best people in the world, Colette Roberts, because saying you're going to go see the worst person in the world makes it seem like somebody specific. Now I'm going to say from the outset, I really like this movie, but I do not like the title. Mike, what do you want to say about that? Thank you for saying that, because I also really like this film. It's very enjoyable. Actually, one of the better films in recent months, but the title's got to go. It's so misleading. It's so distracting, because in fact, that title phrase, worst person in the world, you would think it would be applied to the central figure in the film, which it's not. We'll talk a lot about the woman who's the protagonist here. It's not her. It's somebody else. And even there, it's not accurately or fairly applied. It just to me, honestly, it doesn't make any sense. I can't for the life of me think of all the things you could have called this film. Why call it that? I mean, Marie, as you thought it through, I mean, what's your conjecture at least as to why that became the title? It just doesn't work for me. It doesn't work at all. But my conjecture is this, that it's about a young woman trying to find her place in the world. You know, what kind of career does she want to have? What kind of romantic relationship does she want to be in? All of the things that people grapple with and through it all you know you hope that you make good decisions and that you are not the worst person in the world for your choices that's the only reason i can come up with is that it's that struggle to you know you're going to make mistakes you know you're not always going to get it right but you at least hope that your heart is in the right place and that you won't be misunderstood and from that standpoint what do you think mike I agree with you wholeheartedly. Once you're watching the film, you realize this is a woman heading into her 30s. She changes her jobs periodically, and we'll talk more about that. She changes her boyfriends. She changes her hair color. And the film itself is broken up into 12 numbered and titled chapters. So there are a lot of titles here. So there is an almost bookish, almost literary sense of character development that way. And as you're watching the film, the title becomes more or less understandable. But I'm being like really, really pragmatic here. I'm thinking like a marketing executive would, as in if I had to sell this movie, it's a terrible title from that perspective. For any perspective viewer, or even as you start to watch it, you don't want to find yourself like fixated on or obsessed with, well, why this title? It becomes apparent, but there would have been other ways to convey the fact that she's searching, she's trying to find herself and so on. She doesn't want to be the worst person in the world. But if you're going to be like truly uh, you know, accurate in terms of truth and advertising, you probably should call the film not the worst person in the world. I think that speaks more to her actual character. Though, like a lot of us, you know, you always wonder, how am I being received or perceived by other people? So I can see a certain logic to the title, but I just think there are too many uh, obstacles heading into the film. And even as you watch it, like, don't burden it with a title like that. 
better if it, they'd even just made it not the worst person in the world. That's what I'm thinking. Just call it not the worst person in the world. Why not? I mean, that's actually an interesting title because then I wonder, well, who is then? If yes. you're not the worst person, who is then? <laughs> <laughs> right, because you'd have to at least have something to compare it with. So the character, while she's casting about trying to figure out what to do with her life, I really like that as a theme because, you know, Mike, you and I teach college classes. And you, we get a lot of students who come in thinking, well, you know, maybe I'll study this or maybe I'll study that. And it's a time in your life where you get to explore all of the different possibilities. And you really get to see this with this character. She just has no idea what she wants to do. And she ping pongs back and forth between, you know, really different ideas. Marie, you know what gives it a slightly desperate edge for her is the fact that you and I are talking primarily about college students, late teens, early to mid 20s, still coming to terms with all that. We know that demographic. Those are the young people we work with all the time. But this character, um, Julie, she is actually just the other side of 30. So there's a slightly, when I say desperate edge, I think that I'm speaking for her in the sense that she's feeling a bit frantic, a bit frazzled because she hasn't found herself yet. And usually you would think by that point, you know, as you get into your 30s, you would have settled. Maybe not completely and forever. It might be a first marriage, a starter marriage, and, and you haven't had your divorce yet, but at least you're heading into things. She is still experimenting so much with what job, what boyfriend, what hair color. And I think what makes the film interesting for me is she's sort of feeling the, the clock tick in that sense, that she she's wondering, maybe I am the worst person in the world if I haven't quite found myself yet. And I think that actually makes for an interesting film because you really get a sense of, her inner um, turmoil is putting it maybe too strongly because the film is so enjoyable to watch, but that she really is, you know, worrying about things like that. Well, I want to mention that the director, this is the third in what's meant to be a trilogy of Oslo stories. The other one being Reprise and Oslo, March 31st. Well, I had never seen those movies before, so I went back and watched them and what struck me was how I could see them all fitting together as a piece and how that director likes certain themes like the liquidness of time, the possibilities that exist within possibilities and the following of young people who don't have their act together, who are figuring things out, who are testing the waters, trying things. And having seen the first two, I think it makes that third one, first of all, seem even better just as a movie but also as a piece it works so much better once you've seen the other two what did what do you think mike i agree with you completely here the director is Joachim trier and he's really he's a gifted filmmaker and we're talking about the central character julie but you know what <laughs> maybe the the next most important character is oslo itself you really get a sense of you know this norwegian city you, you get a sense really of the environment the cultural climate that she's living in and that's one reason why, you know, why do I love international films? Why do I teach that so often? For me, it is kind of armchair tourism, isn't it? And, and I don't mean that in a facetious or, or superficial way, but simply that I get a chance to visit another culture for, you know, a couple hours. And, you know, we always have that exercise of what's the same, what's different as we watch this. And there are points of comparison, obviously, people trying to find themselves at that certain age, but also the more specific aspect of, well, yes, this is Oslo, this is Norwegian society. And so I'm always intrigued by every aspect, every every minor character, every, every room she walks into. And, and I don't want to sound like I'm being obsessive with it, but you know what I'm getting at, just simply that you are visiting 
these people in, in this place. And for me, that's inherently interesting. And it remains inherently interesting unless something happens to make it uninteresting. And fortunately, this is a film that really has a strong sense of character development. And it's really well written. And as Marie mentioned, the earlier films in the trilogy, it's really thought of in a very cohesive way. And I like what you said about Oslo being one of the characters, because like you, when they'd show a scene on the street and you'd see like a streetcar going by, it was just, yeah, wow, look how modern and cool their public transportation is, because we don't have that in, in any but the biggest cities here in the United States. So, yeah, you really do get that armchair traveler sense to it. But it's just background. You know, we're, we're taking it in because it's it's novel to us, but it really is just the background for the characters in the movie. Now, having mentioned the background, we have to mention the coolest scene in the film is one where, and I love the metaphor too, it works so well, when Julie has found a new love and she is racing across Oslo to get to him. Everything freezes, all the people and activity are literally frozen in place while she runs through the city. It's that sense of time stops when you fall in love. It was such a great scene. I don't know how they shot it because everybody is so incredibly still. I don't know how you get people to that's some serious acting just to be able to not move like that. But it's such an effective scene. What did you think of that scene, Mike? I also was really intrigued by it. And what intrigued me all the more was the fact that this is a very realistic film in, in most senses, in terms of character development, psychology, et cetera. And yet the director has stylistic flourishes and literary flourishes, a literary structure, if you will, the discrete chapters that are titled. That's a kind of literary artifice, if you will. And, and sometimes in a film that works, sometimes not. Here it does work, actually. You really get chapter by chapter chapters in her life. But then the fact that you'll have the scene that Marie mentioned, you know, where you have like the other characters like freezing in place, that's a kind of risky move. It either works or doesn't. It does work here because we're sort of inside her head at that point and we're sharing her sensibility. Also, by way of a kind of quasi-literary structure, the film is narrated by an unseen older woman. And yet that, that's something that, again, is a little risky because it's not as if the character Julie is narrating the story of her life. It's as if we have, it's really a tactic more from a novel, isn't it? where you have a, a sort of unseen, you know, almost almost like eye of God kind of thing of like, you know, who knows the story, sees the story, and now tells it to us and describing this character to us. These are all essentially literary devices, which here, actually in cinematic terms, they, they work quite well. So this is an instance of where you have a kind of bookish sensibility. And that could be a risky thing in a film in terms of when that works and when it doesn't, when it just seems kind of artificial or forced. Here, for whatever reason, um, and I think partly just because it's so well written and acted, it works very, very well. I like the fact that you brought attention to the fact of the bookishness of it, because I think that's one of the things I like, because I wish everything was like a book with subtitles, you know, like all the action happening, you know, some narration. And when they start off by telling you that this is going to be 12 chapters with a prologue and an epilogue, as they keep going through the chapters, you're also able to keep track of where you are in the movie which I find very nice. It's almost like getting an agenda before you go to a meeting. It's like, so these things, you know where you are. Do you feel that way, Mike? Yeah, and you know what? And, and this is meant to be a sort of in-house joke here, but we, we oftentimes, of course, use movies in, in the classroom or online with our students. And you always want to be able to like quickly get to a scene, like a key scene. So we're always thinking, okay, here's the film. Let's now look at the chapters. And this is a film that's providential that way. Like if Marie wants to isolate a particular scene, oh my goodness, they're already, it's like going to the bookshelf and taking the book off saying, I want chapter six. <laughs> and so the film does have that, that literary quality to it. And again, here, it's an intellectual exercise as much as anything to like really consider this character. 
But what saves it is that the central performance, and by the way, the actress won an award at the Cannes Film Festival for this, you know, it's such a vibrant performance and the film itself is so clever and so lively that you don't feel as if you're getting a literary exercise. You don't feel as if it's bookish in the sense of, you know, okay, next chapter, turn the page. Because we've all seen movies that were like so literal minded about that. The old Hollywood studio films where it's like, like literally turning the page. And sometimes if it's, the movie's not working, it's like, oh no, there are more pages. <laughs> but that's not, that's not a problem here at all. We're happy to get the next chapter. There's another scene that I wanted to mention that I thought was really well done. And that's where they have some mushrooms. And then there's this drug trip scene. I thought that was really well done and just in terms of the making you feel really disoriented and kind of understanding what was going on with the characters. Did you like that scene, Mike? Yeah, I did really. And, you know, scenes like that remind me of, I, I teach a course at, at, at the college on Scandinavian film, and we do watch films from Norway as, as well as the other Scandinavian countries. And it's difficult to generalize here because these can be, you know, eclectic cinemas as much as ours can be. But a lot of the films that we watch from Scandinavian countries have a really strong sense of character and character development in an essentially realistic framework and a real sense of contemporary society. And, you know, this film has just come out and, and you know, I, I haven't taught that course for a while, so it's not as if it's in my mind, but maybe it is in the sense like, like next time out of the gate, like if I teach that course again, what would be films I'd want to use? And Marie can appreciate this as a teacher. We're always thinking that way. We have our syllabus, we have the films we use, but always when a new film comes out, whether you actually go ahead and do it or not, you know, is literally an academic point, but we at least like have the, the mental exercise of thinking, gee, wouldn't that work well in a course? Well, you know, cutting to the quick on this, you know, the worst person in the world would work really well in any course on contemporary Scandinavian cinema. It really represents Oslo in a way where you really feel like, again, in the most positive sense, you're in Oslo, you're with these people, you're in her mind going through everything she's going through. So, you know, what's not to like there? Now, the director has said that it's a rom-com for people who hate rom-com. And I think I know what he's getting at because I also saw Marry Me, which I would call a very typical rom-com. But I went into Marry Me thinking, I know what to expect. I mean, there should be happily ever after. There should be, you know, the misunderstanding that leads to the crisis. You know, there needs to be long, soulful looks into each other's eyes. You know, all the things that go into a rom-com. If possible, have the two people running on a beach and embrace, you know, all the cliches. And I will say this kind of flies in the face of expectations in terms of being a rom-com for people who hate rom-coms. But Mike, what do you think that that means? And and how did that land for you in terms of it being a rom-com? Well, thank you for mentioning that because, you know, I've seen, as Marie has, so many rom-coms and, you know, the cliches pile up pretty quickly, right? And, and so even when I'm enjoying a rom-com because it's easy to watch and, and the characters are relatable and all those nice things, sometimes I do get to the point where it's like so predictable and it's like the strings being pulled and you just know what's coming next. And it's like, oh no, whether it's actual slow motion or not running on the beach and, and you know, and, and the, the, the soulful looks and so on. This is a film that has those elements, but I think it's too clever and too quick and just too smart to automatically succumb to genre cliches there. And one thing that keeps it moving along is the fact that she does really go through so many job changes and boyfriend changes and hair color changes and so on, that the film keeps you alert to that. It doesn't settle into a, a groove, just as she ironically has not settled into a groove. And there's a kind of like on your toes, kind of lively, slightly unsettled, uncertain quality 
that one of the things it's skirting, one of the things it's avoiding would be to settle into a familiar or overly familiar rom-com genre groove. Marie, why don't you pick up on this? Because it seems to me the film certainly has those elements and an awareness of it, but it also knows how to work with those elements without just becoming overly familiar. Yeah, and I think you struck on uh, one of the main things that makes it not your typical rom-com in that she does want, like everybody, to find love and dedicate herself to one person. But that's not the only thing that she is after. She's trying to figure out what she wants to do for a job and, you know, how she fits into the world, how she relates to her father that she has a bad relationship with. All these little things, these are all parts of a person's life. It's not just about her love life and achieving some version of happily ever after, or at least somewhat happy ever after. It's much more nuanced than that, which is why I, I think he, he was on to something by, by calling it that. I want to ask you, Mike, how you think this is going to shake out in terms of the Academy Awards it's been nominated for? Do you think it has a chance of winning? Well, that's what the Academy Awards takes place on, on March 27th. And, um, you know, we're all sitting here wondering how that'll turn out as we're talking now. This film was critically well-received. It's done well in the art house circuit. So, you know, it's well regarded, but I'm not a betting person typically because I would always lose my money. <laughs> but if I were a betting person, this is a film that, you know, certainly among recent international films, one that, that is, you know, on the short list, if you will, quite literally in terms of awards recognition and so on. And whether it wins awards or not, it's a film that, you know, I'll probably use at some point in a course that Marie and I have talked about. It's a film that, you know, and the director is one that we've been watching. We've seen other films by this director and one to watch, a director to watch. I think it's going to come down to this film and Drive My Car as the top best foreign film. Which uh, you're, you're the deciding vote on the Academy, Mike. Which one is it? I actually, I would probably vote for this one over Drive My Car, which you know does have some impressive aspects to it. But uh, in terms of a viewing experience, something I really enjoyed, this film really is, is a good audience film. For me, as a kind of uh, snobby moviegoer, I enjoyed this. I was a happy audience member. I drive my car, I've got more mixed feelings about, but they're both highly regarded films. So quite honestly, I know I'm being put on the spot. I need to vote for one or the other. They are both films that have a lot to be said for them. So, you know, uh, you know give the award to one or the other. But uh, my choice, since I'm on the spot with it, probably would be for uh, The Worst Person in the World, which is not one of the worst films out now. It's actually one of the best films out now. See, that's the risk you take by with that title, because if it bombs, it's just too tempting to refer to the movie as the worst movie in the world. So speaking of bombs, the same director <laughs> has made several films. Marie mentioned a couple of them. I also did an English language film called Louder Than Bombs in 2016 with Isabel Huppert and Gabriel Byrne in it. So this is a director who has I won't say gone Hollywood, but has gone English language at least once so far. And so when I say director to watch, and we're talking about awards recognition, this is a director who's on their radar. What I'm getting at is I wouldn't be surprised if this director gets more offers to make English language films or indeed to make a big Hollywood film, right? What do you think, Marie? Because I think really he's sort of like, in terms of directors to watch, I think this is somebody, even though we're talking about mostly arty films with a kind of a limited audience, I wouldn't be surprised, uh, I'm not getting into superhero territory, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is a director who gets tapped to do a big budget Hollywood film. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think Louder Than Bombs was a pretty good movie, but I will say, even though, and it had you know great actors in it, 
that you mentioned. I think he's on more solid ground with his Oslo stories. I think they just make better stories. I think many people could have made Louder Than Bombs. I only think this director could have made this movie the worst person well, in the world. I agree with you. And this is where critical recognition and career success can be a mixed blessing sometimes. Because Marie, you know, when you have had that and you get the big offers, it's hard to say no to them sometimes, right? So I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think he's better off making more Oslo stories, but what if somebody wants him to make a Hollywood story? Well, then I think they, they'll they be in good hands because I think each of his movies gets more sophisticated. And that's why I said it really made a difference to go back and watch those other two Oslo stories because the first one was pretty good. And then the second one was much better and just in terms of the quality of the cinematography and the shots and sophistication and then this third one i think really is the cherry on top of the sunday <laughs> i can see why he would want to you know branch out and, and more recognition and more more offers i mean who, who doesn't want that i will be watching to see how much recognition this movie gets at the academy awards because it could have a second life you know coming out you know with more people to go see it well, you know, push come to shove, this is an art house film, and I would like to think it'll get a larger audience, but honestly, I, I think it has an appreciative audience, but I don't think the film itself necessarily would get a, a much larger audience. Of course, after we praise it, the, you know, the, the numbers will, will zoom, won't they? But Murray, you know what I'm getting at? I think the film has a cert certain built-in audience, and I don't know, do you think it really would push much beyond that? Well, maybe not, but I think the actually things that would, would hold it back is that title. It's a terrible title. I mean, Speaking it would have been, been better if they just called it Julie the name of the main character. And then you'd be like, but who's Julie? <laughs> <laughs> the worst title in the world. How's that? But how, do you feel about how do you feel about Uncharted as, as a film title? Well, thank you for the segue. Now, I had this on my list of things to see immediately because my cousin, uh, JT, told me, oh, I went to see this and it was you know, really fun to watch. It's about Magellan. And, you know, he always likes to scoop me on movies. So he saw it first. So I was looking forward to seeing it. And when I did see it, all I knew was that it was some sort of Magellan story and JT liked it. So I went in with kind of, you know, just entertain me. It is definitely a kind of movie where you sit down and, and let it entertain you. That being said, in some ways, I felt like it was a real ripoff of Indiana Jones. What did you think, Mike? It definitely is ripping off Indiana Jones. And in terms of more recent franchises, it's definitely ripping off National Treasure. I mm -hmm. think of you know, Nicolas Cage in that. This is a, it's an ironic thing to say, but it, it's a really lazy, busy movie. <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it's working within that action-adventure genre. It is entertaining. It's easy to watch. And, and it's hard to say that without being condescending, but it is. It's easy to watch. You know, I didn't have trouble sitting through it at all, but there's really, you know, not much going on there in terms of anything significant you'd want to say in terms of character, you know, thematically how it dovetails with and deals with or doesn't deal with Sir Francis Drake and with aspects of real history. But essentially, push come to shove, it's yet another treasure hunt story. And we have Tom Holland as our, you know, thief slash bartender slash adventurer and you know he and, and mark Wahlberg, who is a professional thief his character is at least how the the holland and Wahlberg characters you know embark on this mission looking for you know sunken treasure and at some point i'm still a 10 year old kid and yeah you know give me a story with you know adventurers heading out looking for sunken treasure and, and all the complications and all the special effects along the way and so on sure i'm there watching it but you know what it really is that kind of really light entertainment where 
as you're watching it, say, this is okay, it's all right. Would I wanna watch it again? Not really. Would I wanna recommend it? Since you and I are in the seat here to recommend or not recommend things, thumb up, thumb down. I would not recommend it particularly, but if you have, find yourself watching it, you could do a lot worse. You know, it wouldn't be the worst movie in the world that you ever saw. Now, I like Tom Holland and I like Mark Wahlberg, but I found that the Mark Wahlberg character was so heavily trying to be Han Solo. You know, every time he called Tom Holland, you know, sport or something like, or kid, I am thinking of Harrison Ford. And I found that really jarring because I think Mark Wahlberg is, is a better actor than that. But I feel like he's just slept his way through this movie. And he only signed up for this one. So if there's going to be another one, I hope, sorry, Mark, I hope they um, pick somebody else. When we're, he's coasting, you know what I mean? It's an easy role and, and it's, it's mannered in the sense that you've indicated and again, we shouldn't look for great depth here other than the sea in which the, which the treasure is, is hiding, because really it's so superficial. Remind us, you know, remind yourselves the origins of this story. It's based on a PlayStation game from 2007. So how much profundity would one expect from a, a PlayStation game? And it's human characters, but they're at that level of, of gamesmanship there. And I think Mark Wahlberg's character in particular, I agree with you, you know, it's a nice paycheck and it's easy work and, and probably some nice locations to work in, but it doesn't exactly test you as an actor. When you think of an actor's resume, it's certainly not on the short list of his great roles. Likewise, you know, Tom Holland, you know, we know mainly for Spider-Man. He's fine in this role here, but you keep thinking like, you know, he's capable of more and of, of better and so on. But again, you know, Antonio Banderas who, you know, is in this film, he's done so much better work and you feel, and this is a case where coasting really seems like slumming, if you will. What I'm getting at is, this is where I start to feel almost melancholic. You have a really good actor like that and you think, goodness sakes, couldn't you get a, something more interesting, something better? You're so talented. And Maria, let me get your thoughts on this because that's where, even though it's a really light, enjoyable film, sometimes I find myself getting kind of, not quite sad, but at least thinking like, you are, you're good actors, you could do more than this, better than this. I always think with movies like this and with voice acting and animated features that people take on these because they want it to be in a movie that they can take their kids and grandkids in that will be impressive to younger audiences who want something a little more like a Saturday morning cartoon. Tom Holland, right after this wrapped, immediately went and filmed Spider-Man. So it felt kind of like he was in his Spider-Man role making this like he was already looking ahead to that next movie which i think makes him seem less you know nuanced as an actor because it just seems like the same role but in a different environment but you know since we've been talking about all the bad things about the movie i do want to mention there are some really cool moments in the film there's a scene on a plane that's absolutely amazing to watch just in terms of the kinetics and then there's this great scene sort of near the end where they're lifting these gigantic pirate ships with helicopters and how just amazing that looks. And then, of course, all of the action that goes with how are we going to mess that up in the most explosive way possible? And you know it's going to happen. So you're just waiting for the carnage to happen. And I thought that was really fun to watch. Yeah, I agree with you. There's still the 10-year-old kid within me. You get sequences like what you just mentioned, and sure, that is a lot of fun to watch. On a more adult note, you know, I'm thinking almost like an archaeologist would here. You know, you, you found these, you know, really old treasure ships and associated with famous figures in maritime history. 
and in, in the rescue operation, if you will, in the salvage operation, to have them blow up, be destroyed, this and that. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, that you know, speaking of treasures, you know, what the world's lost here. But that's a more adult worry. But Marie, watching it at some point, when I did enjoy this film, was at that level. Of, hey, you know, I'm 10 years old and I'm at a matinee, and my parents paid for it. I didn't pay for the ticket or the popcorn. I'm just enjoying the movie. Maria, I have to agree with you. It's one reason why the film has had an audience, because it is a good audience film that way. And again, it's difficult to say that without seeming condescending about it, but it is a good audience film that way. Again, would we see it again? Would we recommend it? Eh, you know, meh kind of response. But, but you know, as you watch it, it's often fun. It is a movie, though, if I saw it come on TV, I would stop and watch if I was, if it was just about to get to that scene that I mentioned and watch that again but from beginning to end watch again maybe not but that brings us to the end of this episode so check out our other episodes at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under dragon digital radio on spotify and pandora and we'll see you next time at the movies see you then connect with us we are dragon digital radio